God of life, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire. Amen. My dad's a common sense, down-to-earth kind of guy who has a knack for making a little bit of money go a long way. He's worked the same job in the service industry pretty much since he was out of high school, and he always taught me and my sisters that, that the important thing isn't how much you make, but what you do with what you have. So when I was 12 or 13 and bringing home, you know, $20 here or there from the occasional babysitting job, he encouraged me strongly encouraged me, forced me, to open a mutual fund. He explained, there's some places you can put your money that if you just leave it there for long enough, it grows into more money by itself. I was like, okay, sounds kind of cool, but also I was 12 and I didn't really feel like handing over the first money I ever made to my dad in some magic bank account, but I, I did. I contributed to the mutual fund here and there for a year, but soon after I forgot about it which I think means that my dad forgot to come around soliciting contributions. So when I rediscovered the, the account just five or so years ago, I found it had grown to about $2,000. And I don't know how much money I put there in the first place, but I was probably making $5 an hour babysitting, so clearly something had happened. It had grown. And on that day, five years ago, it was easy for me to appreciate my dad forcing me to invest those meager wages just as it will also be easy for me to appreciate 30 years down the road when I'm ready to cash, it, cash that out. If, I should be sure to add in light of our gospel text, I live to see the day. The future is uncertain, so be prepared. Save for emergencies, save for retirement. It's the message we all hear. Work hard now, save what you can, so that one day all that's left for you to do is enjoy the hard-earned fruit of your labor. I've been familiar with this parable since I was a child, but reading it with fresh eyes as an adult in preparation for this sermon, an adult who thinks, perhaps not often as I should, but who does think now and then about how to build toward a financially secure future, I was kind of like, what's so wrong anyway about what this guy did? He had a good year. He had a, a really good year, it sounds like. He decided to kick up his heels and enjoy himself for the time he had left. I mean, I'll tell you, I confess, if on the day I rediscovered my mutual fund, there were a few more zeros on the end of that $2,000, I might have been thinking the same thing. Sure, he didn't, he didn't realize that that very day that he was having these thoughts would also happen to be his last day, but how could he have known that? All of us plan for futures. We have no certainty at all that we'll survive to see. So, what exactly about what this landowner did or didn't do was so foolish that we're still talking about it and learning from it 2,000 odd years later? Growing up in church, I was taught that the landowner's real problem, why he was a fool, it wasn't because he had too much, he just didn't have the proper kind of relationship with what he had. Maybe some of you have heard that interpretation as well. He forgot, as the saying goes, you can't take it with you. Had he been more mindful of this and mindful of his mortality, he might have been a little more generous with his prophet, thought more of others. He might have had a more humble attitude toward God. 
And the implication of this teaching, this interpretation, is that Jesus doesn't take issue at all with how much money we make or the fact that we use it to secure ourselves, as long as we go about it in a virtuous way. As long as we give some away here and there and remember, keep in mind, that the security and privilege that money provides will in the end only get us so far. I'm struck by how comfortably that message sits with me and how comfortably it sits with many dutiful churchgoers across America. Ask me to get my heart right, to get my priorities straight, absolutely, I'm in. I'll at least try. I mean, that's partly why I come to church, to be reminded of what's important and to be prompted to be generous and good. But ask me to start looking at the balance of my bank accounts, ask myself questions about my entitlement to my money and my resources, mm. now I'm not so sure. In Luke 18, there's a story of a rich, a rich young ruler, many of you I'm sure are familiar with it. He, he comes to Jesus and he asks, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus starts by telling him, keep the commandments. And he's like, yes, great, I do that. Matter of fact, I've been doing that since I was a kid, done. And I'm sure he must have felt relieved. And then Jesus tells him to sell everything he has and give the money to the poor. And then he walks away. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached a ser sermon on this very gospel passage, the, the parable of the foolish landowner, at Mount Pisgah Missionary Baptist Church in Chicago in August of 1967 tough act for any preacher to follow. In his sermon, he explained that the rich man is a fool. The reason the rich man's a fool, he said, is because he failed to recognize the extent to which his success depended on, on the sacrifice of others. He acted as if just because he owned it, he alone was entitled to the profit of his land. Others have argued the same thing about this parable. To be rich enough to own land, you had to be an elite. You had to be someone with strong connections to the ruling Roman Empire. Everyone else, like probably most of the people who were gathered around Jesus listening to this parable, were peasants living under occupation. The peasants were the one who worked the landowner's fields from morning to night. It was their bodies, their sweat and blood that made him and the empire rich while they and their families struggled to survive. Dr. King went on to preach in his sermon. The great problem facing our nation today in the area of race, he said, is that it's the black man who to a large extent produced the wealth of this nation. And the nation doesn't have sense enough to share its wealth and its power with the very people who made it so. He went on, before the Pilgrim Fathers landed at Plymouth in 1620, we were here before Jefferson etched across the pages of history the majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. Before the beautiful words of the Star-Spangled Banner were written, we were here. For more than two centuries, our forebears labored here without wages. They made Cotton King. With their hands and with their backs and with their labor, they built the sturdy docks, the stout factories, the impressive mansions of the South. And he goes on to lament that in spite of all of that, 
black people continued to be barred in all kinds of ways from acquiring wealth and property in the same way as whites. And I feel, he continues, that if something doesn't happen soon and something massive, the same indictment will come to America, thou fool. This week was the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the first enslaved Africans in Jamestown. And in commemorating this fateful event, we honor the strength, the resilience, the spiritual leg legacy, and the survival of all those first and all enslaved Africans. This event is also an occasion to recommit ourselves to the hard work of reckoning with and repairing to the limited extent we can the racist violence which has suffused our country's history and informs many of the disparities that persist today. And as you all know, the Reparations Committee in our diocese has been leading us in a three-year journey of precisely this kind of reckoning. I think following King that this parable can be a guidepost for us along this journey. It issues us a warning. Reckon, like the foolish landowner failed to do, with the fact that your wealth is not solely your own. For some, myself included, that entails explicit reckoning with the ways that slavery and its afterlives have accrued wealth to white people. The parable also warns this. To the extent that it's impossible for those oppressed by the system to get out from under it, it's impossible for those privileged by that same system to be delivered from its snares into the kingdom of God. Investing in a death-dealing system is divesting from God's kingdom and vice versa. The gospels seem clear that they're mutually exclusive. The question for us then is how to forsake one kind of riches in favor of becoming, as Jesus puts it, rich toward God. Kind of an interesting, interesting phrase, right? Rich toward God. I'm not wholly sure what that means, but immediately following this parable, Jesus hints at what a life rich toward God could look and feel like. Listen, he says, don't worry yourself over material things, the stuff you need to survive, food, clothes, shelter. Consider the lilies, the ravens of the field. They don't have ways of storing up for the future. They don't have barns or bank accounts. And see how they flourish. And how much more precious are you in the eyes of God than they? You, beloved children, worry yourselves about God's kingdom. Make that what you strive for. And trust, meanwhile, God's got the rest. For those who have nothing but God to rely on for survival, who haven't the option of storing or saving for the future, these words offer consolation, a reminder. Child of God, you are loved. Child of God, rest assured. Child of God, betrayed and oppressed by the, kingdoms, by the kingdom of this world, God's got you. For all of us, his words are an invitation to get free. That stuff you care so much about gets in your way, Jesus warns us again and again, from giving yourselves to the movement of God's spirit in the world. Let it go. 
okay, we might say, we want to let it go. We want to be a part of the movement of God's spirit. We want to follow. What do we do? Or is the, in the words of the rich young ruler, what must we do to inherit eternal life? Well, we know how Jesus answers him. Give it all away. So too, for some of us, it seems that the first step will involve some redistribution, some letting go in the form of giving away. I'm not sure there's a way around it. But Jesus also seems to be telling us, rather simply in some ways, to just think a lot less about ourselves. To think less about, yeah, what we'll eat and what we'll drink and what we'll wear, but maybe also to think less about how good of an activist or ally or progressive we are, how far we've traveled on the road to righteousness. I think when confronted with injustice, we who feel implicated in some way often spend a lot of energy thinking about how to get clean, like how to differentiate ourselves from the evil done in our name, to be one of the good ones, to be on the right side of history. But not only is getting clean more or less impossible, it's also a distraction that leaves us caught, just as we were before, in the trappings of self-interest. I don't mean to suggest that worrying less or even thinking less about ourselves is the goal per se. When Jesus says, don't worry, I don't think his point is that anxiety is some kind of sin. I think instead he's saying, get lost, get immersed in God's vision for the world. A world in which, instead of some being abused for others' gain, all people flourish like the lilies and the sparrows. Get busy about the work of making that a reality. Fix your gaze there. And see how what used to concern you most just sloughs away. Seek first the kingdom of God, and the rest shall be added unto you. Lose yourself in the work of the kingdom of God, work that makes the last first, that has good news for the poor, that helps the oppressed go free. And in doing so, Jesus says, you just may find yourselves free as well. May it be so. Amen.